Good morning, my name is Esther and I'm so happy to be sharing with you this morning. As you probably know, this is the second Sunday of Advent. That means that we get to continue looking at Jesus and what his arrival on this earth accomplished for us. Some of us may not be that familiar with Advent. Others maybe are so familiar that it's lost some of its shine. Or maybe just the year we've had has sucked any kind of life out of a celebration you might have and you feel like you have nothing left to give. This morning, regardless of where your heart is, I want, us, I want to invite us into the life-giving presence of Jesus. Whether you are chomping at the bit to celebrate Advent or you're weighed down, I want us to see how Jesus' arrival has changed everything. Pray with me this morning as we get started. Father, it's been a hard couple of months, preceded by months of difficulty before that. Still, we come to you this morning confident that you have something to say to us about your son's arrival on earth. We come to you this morning knowing that you want to draw us into your life-giving presence. May we see you this morning in a fresh light. May we anticipate celebrating the birth of your son in a new way. Thank you for being with us and loving us so completely. In your son's name, amen. So, full disclosure, I love Advent. If you know me at all, you know I'm a big celebrator. I pretty much jump at any chance to get out a tablecloth, fancy dishes, and throw a big party. Of course, with COVID, my celebrations, like yours, are going to look a little different this year. But there's still lots of Advent traditions that we can do. And one of the ones that our family does is called the Jesse tree. A Jesse tree is a small tree that you hang ornaments on. It's called the Jesse tree because it comes from Isaiah 11 that says that a shoot will come out from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David, and if you trace Jesse's descendants through King David, they culminate in Jesus. So it's the Messiah family tree. And during Advent, if you're doing the Jesse tree each day for 25 days leading up to Christmas, you read a, a small passage and then you hang an ornament on your tree, your Jesse tree, that's symbolic of the passage. So we do this with our children each day, and we usually try to engage them on the passage and what we think, what they think it might be talking about. And I remember this one year, we were doing our Jesse tree, and so I was reading, actually, the Isaiah 11 passage about the, the branch that comes out of the stump of Jesse. And I'm asking my kids, what do you think this means? And a couple of them had some ideas. But then my second son, stands up on his chair, gets everybody's attention, and yells really loudly, peanut butter. Now, I have no idea where he got peanut butter from, and even less idea why he thought that was the right answer. In this case, just going with your basic Sunday school answer of Jesus would have actually been right. Clearly, Advent has nothing to do with peanut butter. The word Advent actually means arrival. So when we talk about celebrating Advent, we mean celebrating the arrival of God on this earth in the person of Jesus. But the idea of Advent also includes the promise of his second coming, of a second Advent. Uh, of the one, this Advent will usher in the new kingdom on heaven and in earth. Daniel mentioned last Sunday that for our Advent season, our church is doing the common lectionary liturgy. That means that each of the four Sundays in Advent, we are joining with thousands of churches around the world looking at specific passages. 
And our passage this morning that we get to spend time on is going to give us the opportunity to look at Jesus' second advent, at his second coming. Advent means arrival, yes, but it's an arrival that points to his second coming. His first advent is a foretaste of what his second advent will be. So to help us look at this second advent, the passage that we're going to be in this morning is 2 Peter 3. So if you have your Bible with you, either at home or on the plaza, go ahead and turn to 2 Peter 3. And while you're turning there, I want to lay a little bit of background work so that we're um, in context for our specific passage. So Peter's going going to spend the final chapter of this second letter to these believers talking about the day of the Lord. Your Bible might even have the day of the Lord as a tagline up by the chapter 3 heading. The day of the Lord expression comes from the Old Testament, and Peter uses it here to encapsulate everything that's involved in the second coming of Christ. The day of the Lord means the second advent. And when Peter uses the day of the Lord, or sometimes the day of God, he's using it as a shorthand to encompass everything, the promises, the judgments, everything that's involved in the second coming of Christ. Peter's context for writing here is is actually not that different from our own context, as we can see from what he says in the beginning of chapter 3. He starts this section of talking about the second coming of Christ by calling his readers to remember the predictions and promises that the prophets and apostles had made. They prophesied, they promised that Jesus was going to come again. But Peter says people are going to come along and they're going to question that promise. They're going to look around and say, where is this Jesus you say is coming? They're going to doubt Jesus's return. They're going to doubt the promises of God. Peter says these people are going to deliberately question God's goodness. They're going to question the assurance of eventual judgment, and they're going to scoff. He calls them scoffers in verse 3, and he says they follow after their own evil desires. So far, that sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? We live in a time when people are unwilling to accept God's goodness, when they're not willing to see his love for him, for them, and when they choose to ignore his promises of eventual judgment. They scoff at the promises of God and live sinful lives, pursuing fleeting pleasures and momentary gratifications, and they ignore the promise that Jesus will one day come again. It was true in Peter's day, and it's true in our day. So Peter calls his, his readers to remember the promises and the predictions made by the prophets and apostles. Peter says, yes, I know people are going to come along. They're going to doubt Jesus' promises. They're going to question your beliefs. They're going to make fun of you. But be patient. Jesus is coming. Hang on. The second advent will occur. And that brings us to verse 8. As we see Peter tell his readers why their patience is necessary. Their patience is necessary, we'll see, because God doesn't experience time in the same way that we do. God does not exist in the same manner with time as us. Let's look at verses 8 and 9 together. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 
Isn't that amazing? Peter reminds us that God doesn't exist in time the same way we do. He doesn't experience time like us. And he specifically reminds us of that in light of Jesus' second coming. We grow weary. We are tempted to forget God's promises. We look around at the world and think, what is going on? Where is Jesus? But for God, a thousand days is like a year. A thousand years is like a day and a day like a thousand years. God doesn't experience time like we do. And it's important for us to remember that so that we don't grow weary. But it's not just that time is different for God than it is for us, Peter says. There's more to it. It's that God is, God's patience serves a purpose. He is patient because he longs for all to come to salvation. He is slow in returning because he wants to give as much time as possible for others to find repentance. Let's look again in verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is taking his time and sending his son for a second time because he wants to allow as many opportunities as possible for humanity to find repentance. He wants to give as much time. He delays his return so that more and more people can find him through salvation. It's as if God is sitting up in heaven saying, well, if I send Jesus back now, then Kim's father won't be saved. If Jesus comes, if he returns now, then Ryan's sister won't be with us in, in eternity. Or James, or Tony's son, or Callie, or Greg. And so I better wait. Isn't that just like our God? Isn't that just like how his heart is, that he would want to be slow because he wants to give as much time as possible for as many people as possible to find him through repentance? God is patient toward humanity, wanting that everyone would be saved. But Peter goes on in the next verse to say that eventually Jesus will return eventually the second advent will occur. And then he tells us a little bit of what it will be like. It will be unexpected and it will be world-changing. It will come without warning and the world will never be the same. Let's look now together at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Peter says that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. Here he's quoting Jesus himself who said that the son of man will come like a thief in the night, unexpected and without warning. No one knows when the day of the Lord is, but when he does come, it will be with world altering results. And for those who are unprepared, those results will be catastrophic. Peter says the heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements, the heavenly bodies, will be destroyed by fire. Let's pause here and unpack that a bit. There's a lot of debate going on about what Peter is saying here, and that's understandable. Peter's language is very apocalyptic. It's nonspecific. And that's because Peter's trying to describe the indescribable. But most scholars do agree that Peter is talking about the physical elements of this world. So when he says that the heavens will disappear, he means that the sky will disappear. The heavenly bodies, the stars, the moon will be burned up and destroyed. And then finally, he says the earth 
everything in it, all the workings, all the strivings of humanity, everything in the earth will be laid bare, will be exposed. Your translation might even say, will be burned up. Peter's language here echoes passages from Isaiah that say the heavens will melt and words from Malachi that say the day of the Lord will come like a burning oven. It's intense language. If it sounds like the world's ending, that's because it is. This present earth and everything in it will pass away. Whether that's in a literal fire or in an instance of God's wrath, I don't know. But it is definitely clear that when the second advent comes, major stuff is going down and the world will never be as it was before. And so what are Peter's readers to do? Since we know that the second advent is going to bring such total destruction, what are we as believers to do? Let's keep going now. Let's look at verse 11. Peter says that since everything we know is going to disappear, here's how we should act. We should live lives of godliness and holiness. Since we know that Jesus is going to eventually come, we are called to live lives that look different from the world around us. Look with me at verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live lives of holy, you ought to live holy and godly lives. Peter asks a rhetorical question here. What sort of people ought you to be? People who live holy and godly lives. The scoffers we talked about at the beginning of chapter three, the scoffers who say, where is this Jesus that you keep saying is coming back? They follow after their own evil desires. We can't do that because we know the promises of God that Jesus is going to return for a second time. We are called to live differently. We must live lives that are holy and godly. I'm going to talk about that more in a minute, but I want to keep working our way through the passage because as we'll see in verse 12, Peter gives even more instruction on how we are called to live. It's not just that we need to be holy and godly. As we wait for the second advent of Jesus, we also live in such a way that hastens his return. We live lives that actually speed up his coming. Look at verse 12. I'll pick it up in the end of verse 11. You ought to live with holiness and godliness as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Peter tells his readers, they must wait. Here's that patience part again. They must wait for the second coming, but also they must hasten it. And, and what can believers do? What can we do to hasten the day of the Lord? He calls them to live holy and godly lives, to be patient, but he calls them to work for its coming. And so what does that mean? How can we hasten Jesus' second advent? We can hasten his second coming by bringing others to repentance, by bringing others the good news of salvation. That links us back up to verse 9 where Peter says, the reason God delays in sending his son is because he wants to give more opportunity for more people to come to repentance. Peter says that it is our job to live lives that will hasten the day of Jesus' coming. And Peter says this without a hint of guilt. There's no shame. He's not trying to bully his readers into evangelism. And I certainly wouldn't want anyone to leave this time this morning feeling guilty because we don't witness more. 
Peter's invitation is actually an exciting one. This time in between the advents, this time in between the arrivals, it's not a passive time. It's not a time of inactivity. It's a time where we get to join with God in his kingdom work. We get to join with God in telling others about what Jesus has done. We get to join with God in showing his love and his kindness. Romans 2 says that it's God's kindness that brings people to repentance. That's good news. That's the good news of what Jesus has done for us. That's the news that we share with other people. That's how we partner with God in this kingdom work. And that's how we hasten the day of his second coming. Peter ends this section with one final word of encouragement for his listeners as we wait for God's promises. As we wait, Peter reminds us once more that our future is in the new heaven and the new earth. Our future as believers is in a world that will be remade, perfect and eternal. As we see the total destruction of the world as we know it, we do not lose hope because we know that a new earth is coming. Look with me at verse 13. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Here, Peter is quoting from Isaiah 65, where the prophet wrote, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Peter is telling his readers that even though this have, these heavens and this earth pass away, do not lose hope. Do not be discouraged because a new heaven and a new earth are coming. Peter reminds us that even as we are called to be patient, to live godly and holy lives, we can do it because we know the end result. We know that a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells are coming. The end game isn't destruction. The end game is creation. It's the recreation initiated by the second coming of Christ. And it's perfect. Our recreated earth is perfect. And scripture says it's the place where Jesus dwells as the righteous one. It's a home to righteousness. The new heavens and the new earth are the final dwelling place of Jesus. And we, as his followers, dwell there with him in perfect righteousness and unity. So I know that's a slightly different Christmas message than maybe we're used to, but I love this idea that as we think about Advent, as we meditate on Jesus's first arrival, that it points us to his second arrival. In his first Advent, the kingdom of God was brought near. In his second Advent, the kingdom of God takes up permanent residence on the new earth. And so what difference does all of this make? How are we to respond this Advent season? If we don't respond, if we don't remember God's promises, if we don't trust in the assurance that Jesus will one day come again, there are three likely outcomes. Well, I'm sure there's more than three, but I'm going to tell you three. Apathy. If people's thinking about this world, about how they came to be in it, is that nothing matters, and it's not rooted in the truth of Jesus' first and second Advents, then there's nothing left for them but apathy. What's the point of anything? What's, what difference does my existence make if it all ends in nothing anyway? When we don't hold on to the promises of God, we become apathetic. Nothing matters. 
and we don't care about anything. Forgetting the promises of God can also lead to hedonism. If our existence doesn't matter, if we think that we won't be held accountable for our choices, for our actions, if we don't take seriously the promises of God that he will one day send his son for a second time, then we just indulge in a life of meaningless pleasure. The highest aim is satisfaction, hedonism, and it just leaves us pursuing one thing after another, never satisfying. A third possible response of ignoring the truth of Jesus' second coming is despair. Without truth, without faith, without the knowledge of who Jesus is and what his second advent will bring, there's nothing left to live for. We despair of our own worth, we despair of the world that's falling apart around us, and we despair of a future. Without the promises of God rooted in his second coming, it all leads to dark emptiness. But my friends, none of those have to be true of us. We don't have to be apathetic or seeking only temporary pleasures or despairing because we know we believe in the promises of Jesus and in his second coming. We hold on to the truth that as he came this first time as a tiny child, he will come a second time and that second time will bring victory and judgment. We believe in God's promises, those delivered and preserved for us in this book, and so we don't grow weary. We hold on in patience. We wait for his second coming. But it's not a passive waiting. We are called to live holy and godly lives. What does that look like for us? What does that mean as we celebrate Advent, as we think about this week that's coming up? Where are you, where am I called into holiness, into godly living? As Christians, we are called to be set apart. That's what holiness means. It means being set apart. And so there are lots of ways for us to look different from the world around us. One way is we can do that with our time. We can devote our time to God, to prayer, to scripture reading, to fasting, to meditating, to reaching out to a friend who is hurting. As the world around us clamors over social media and Netflix and self-promotion, we choose to devote our time to God and to a friend who's hurting. A godly life, a life of holiness, also looks different to how we spend our money. Christmas has become a season not of celebrating Jesus' advent, but of shopping and of spending. And what better way for us to be salt and light to this world than to choose to use our money differently this Christmas season? Every time I think of this, I'm reminded of Luke Porter. Beth actually mentioned him last Sunday. He's a high schooler who goes to this church. And many years ago, he asked his parents, instead of money for Christmas, he wanted to put that toward uh, World Vision, which is a global evangelical relief organization. And so instead of presents each year, he raises money to buy chickens and goats for families that are in need. That's living set apart. A godly life also means making choices in our dating relationships and marriages that look different from the world. We choose purity and holiness. Rather than fleeting pleasures and instant gratifications, we choose to take every thought captive rather than dwelling on and indulging in those that only lead to darkness. We choose to stay married even when it's hard because that sets us apart. 
Peter says, what sort of people ought you to be? You ought to be people who live lives of holiness and godliness. We are people who pursue a life that looks different from the world around us. As we live in between the advents, in between the arrivals, in this already not yet part of God's kingdom, we believe in his promises and so choose to pursue holiness and godliness. Holiness and godly living also means finding ways to love those who are in need. This could be the homeless person you serve at the rescue mission, the foster child you take into your home, the classmate who's always alone that you find ways to include. It could be the neighbor that you invite in your Christmas celebrations. It could be the spouse that you extend extra grace to, even though you feel like they've used up their fair share of your grace as it is. We are also patient. We don't grow weary of proclaiming God's goodness or begin to doubt his return. We know that he delays for a purpose so that more people can find repentance, so that more people can find salvation. Many of us will be with unbelieving family this Christmas season, whether virtually or in person. Have you reminded them recently of God's abundant love for them? Have you reminded him, them recently of his love and his kindness for them? As we wait, we take advantage of every opportunity to tell others about Jesus and so hasten his return. My friends, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to this earth as a baby to save the world. And he has promised that he's going to come for a second time. We've already seen the effects of the first advent. Time itself was literally split into two, years before Christ and years after Christ. And we believe in the promise of what his second coming will bring. One day he will return and there will be a new heaven and a new earth and we will dwell with him there in perfect unity. And so my friends, as we wait, let us pursue lives of holiness and of godliness and let us be patient. Thanks be to God.